0: And now, here's your host, Kevin Conover. Bring your time and bring your shame.
1: Welcome to Educate for Life. I'm your host, Kevin Conover. My website's educateforlife.org, and you can check out all kinds of resources there on my website. Um, what I'm doing, I'm an apologetics teacher. I teach uh, Christian classes, Bible classes, and and uh, explaining the Christian faith to high school students, and I'm also an adjunct professor, and i um, What I like to do is talk about a biblical perspective, a biblical worldview, what is it that uh, we need to understand about how to apply the Bible to our lives, and also to look at this historically. I'm really excited to have my guest on the show today. His name is Professor Edward Watts. He, He received a PhD in history from Yale University in 2002, and his research interests center on the intellectual and religious history of the Roman Empire and the early Byzantine Empire. Uh, He is the endowed chair in Byzantine history at UC San Diego. That's my my alma mater, actually. He writes about political and religious uh, change in the Roman Republic, Roman Empire, and Byzantine Empire. His work has been featured in The Economist, The New York Times, The New Yorker, Times, Smithsonian, and NPR. He is the author of several books. One of them was his most recent, Mortal Republic, How Rome Fell into Tyranny, and also The Final Pagan Generation, Hypatia, uh, who was a historical figure, uh, a woman who had a, a heavy influence on what was happening in Rome and, um, and uh, kind of moving things forward. And um, so, Professor Watts, I wanted to thank you for being on the program today.
2: Thank you so much for
1: having me. Fantastic. Well, um, so interesting here, uh, what got you interested in studying Rome in the first place? Why did you st- decide to start studying Rome?
2: Uh, The interest in Rome, really, it came from the first visit that I made to the city. Uh, And the remarkable thing about visiting Rome is the the fact that the layers of history are so deep. Mm -hmm. You know, you can walk through a city and and experience 2,700 years of Roman history. And it's, you know, it's Roman royal history, it's Roman republican history, it's Roman imperial history, it's Christian Roman history. Um, And I really felt like it was essential to try to understand exactly you know how a city works that way and what the world is like that produces that kind of experience uh, and that got me into Roman history um, but I was particularly interested in the later Roman Empire initially and uh, the process by which this empire becomes Christian um, and then eventually creates uh, an empire where you know the state and the religion are joined together so, it was a you know it's a it's a long period of history It lasts over two thousand years um, but it's very fascinating to to study and try to understand
1: absolutely and a lot of people are really interested in Rome because uh, it's 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 one of the uh, nations that has the longest history that survived for the longest and then people a lot of times look at it and go okay well why did Rome fall and uh, and so a lot of people historically not just uh, with our country but with other countries also. Would would say okay? How are we similar to Rome? Do we need to be afraid of the same things um, that caused Rome to fall? And this is in the this is in uh, our culture a lot. There's a lot of opinions about what it is that made Rome fall, and then ultimately looking at our own country and saying, are we going to also face the same kind of um, uh, road uh, to the future? There's all kinds of books about this: um, the road to tyranny, the road to serfdom, and then your book here also. Um, mortal republic, how Rome fell into tyranny, uh, what what caused you to move in this direction to begin to really um, look at how Rome fell?
2: That's actually a really interesting way to frame the question. Um, I've been teaching Roman history for almost 20 years, and when I started teaching Roman history in the late 1990s, the real concern was looking at the fall of the Roman Empire and looking at uh, America after the end of the Cold War and comparing them as empires that maybe were overextended, or maybe, you know, we going to fall because of military challenges. Uh, and what's interesting is in the last five years or so, the conversation has completely shifted in the United States. You know, now the fall of the Roman empire is, it seems less relevant to what we're going through. And the fall of the Roman Republic becomes more interesting. Uh, and what I wanted to do with this book was to explore how the Roman Republic actually fell, why that system was a good system for a long time, and what eventually led to it collapsing. Um, And it's particularly important at this moment because when the founding fathers in the United States sat down to imagine what the best form of government would be uh, for the United States, one of the models they used was the Roman Republic. So in a sense, the Roman Republic is is in our political DNA. Um, And so understanding it, doesn't necessarily mean that what happened in Rome will happen here, but it does allow us to understand some of the weaknesses that we might have, because, you know, in a sense, we're the the children or grandchildren of Rome's Republic. And some of that um, strength was inherited, but some of the weakness was as well. And so this book is a way, I hope, to tell Rome's story in a way that's true to Rome's story, but also just opens our minds to some some things that we can perhaps think about and recognize as we try to figure out how to move forward in, in our political culture right now.
1: Yeah. Do you think it's true that, you know, the cliche saying is those who don't know their history are destined to repeat it? Do you think that there's a truth to that uh, phrase?
2: I think it's really an interesting, it's an interesting idea. Um, I think what history does is it gives us a set of possibilities to think with. Mm. Um, you know, it, it's very hard when something happens in the world to imagine what it will lead to. And what history does is it says here are a number of incidents that are similar, and this is what it led to. And so when we're thinking about what's going on in the present, it's important to understand that the present is not the past. It's different. Um, But some of the outcomes might be similar. And we have to be able to imagine all of those outcomes, Um, and especially in the Roman case, because Rome could not imagine this outcome of its republic falling the Republic at the time it fell was 500 years old. Um, no one in Rome thought it could fall. And so no one could imagine that that was even a possibility. Uh, and I think the benefit that we have is we, we have more knowledge of what happens when political challenges emerge in the Republic and what could happen uh, as a consequence. It doesn't mean it will happen, um, but it gives us some tools to think with so that we can plan out um, whether courses of action are positive or potentially negative and where they might lead.
1: Absolutely. So, so this is interesting for our day and age, because there's a lot of people on both, uh, from a political uh, perspective, there's a lot of people on the, both the left and the right saying, Hey, uh, you know, we're moving towards tyranny. We're moving towards uh, dictatorship. Um, are, do you think that these are, uh, you know, inflammatory statements that are, that are, uh, taking things out of proportion or or making things a bigger deal than they actually are? Or do you think there are actually changes taking place in our political system, in our uh, culture and so forth that are actually could possibly move us more towards uh, a a dictatorship or tyranny or or people is no longer being government by the people for the people, but more, um, you know, people ruling uh, a small group of people ruling over everybody else?
2: Yeah, I think that this is this is where the Roman example becomes very interesting, because a lot of the people who are saying this are looking to models from the 1930s, um, where, you know, the political crises that hit, say, Germany in the mid-1930s um, hit a republic that's very young. You know, everybody who is of voting age in Germany could remember something before the Weimar Republic was in place. Um, the same is true in, in the Spanish Republic, the same is true in the Greek Republic. And so, the immediate reaction to some of the political crises we've been seeing is to turn to the 1930s and say, well, tyranny is right around the corner. Mm-hmm. And I think the real danger is the United States is a very old republic. You know, our republic is, is over 230 years old. And so, it's not going to degenerate as quickly as something that's 10 years old. Um, you know, it's much more robust, it's much stronger. And I think the real danger is um, if people say tyranny is right around the corner, and then it's not, everybody will exhale and say, okay, we dodged a bullet. Now let's get back to normal. Um, and maybe the problem that we're facing is it's a little more long lasting. Um, and in Rome, the crisis that hit the Republic took a hundred years to actually break the Republic. Um, and I, I think that this is the real danger of people saying we're on the verge of tyranny. Uh, we might be on the path to tyranny, but I think that if if we are on that path, we're at a very early point in that path. And there's plenty of time to turn back if we reflect on what is our republic supposed to do? And how can we as citizens make sure it actually does that? Um, and and so I think that there is a long-term risk that political dynamics in the U.S. can continue to get worse. But I don't think there's a short-term risk of dictatorship or tyranny. And I think that... Um, it's important also to acknowledge that, that long-term risk is there, but it's also avoidable, and we can take steps to to avoid it if we all work together to do that.
1: Yeah, and if we are able to identify exactly what we need to be uh, be concerned about, right? Yeah,
2: yeah. And, and I think that the you know the most important thing that we can do as citizens is to say that we value this republic. You know, we value our system of government and. That means that if if you're on the left, sometimes people on the left will do things that endanger the system of government. People on the left need to criticize that. Um, If you're on the right and someone on the right does something to endanger the system of government, people on the right need to do that. But I think that this is a, a common conversation that everybody should have. You know, if we value living in a free society, we need to advocate for that free society. And we need to sometimes say, whatever side of the political divide I'm on, it's not important if our society isn't going to be free.
1: Absolutely. Um, well, uh, my guest today is Professor Edward Watts. He's a professor at UCSD. He's written numerous books on this particular subject, and we're talking about, hey, what is how is America compared to Rome and Roman history? When we come back, we're going to ask him what does he think is the primary cause of Rome's fall, and how does it relate to our current situation in America? What do we need to be concerned about, and what can we, what can we be having discussions with our neighbors and our friends and our relatives about to all be informed citizens that um, uphold one of our greatest uh, values and virtues, which is freedom. We'll be right back. Luke Gibson of LG Equipment supports Educate for Life with Kevin Conover. Luke grew up in the construction industry and now serves LG's commercial and residential customers throughout Southern California. Whether you need grading, paving, hauling, demolition, on-site bulk water service, water trucks, tankers, and towers, call LG Equipment at 619-998-0924. Learn more at lgequipment.com. Thanks for listening today. This is Educate for Life. I'm your host, Kevin Conover. If you're streaming online, I hope you enjoy the show. Write some comments. Give us some feedback. Help us to understand what you're thinking about. What is it you think caused Rome to fall? What do you think uh, needs to change about America and the way things are being done? My website is educateforlife.org. And if you want to check out more resources, if you want to get informed about a biblical perspective, you can do that um, on there. We're also on the radio, FM one hundred six point one North County K Praise and AM twelve ten San Diego K Praise. Also, you can check out the show there. You can check it out on YouTube, all over the place. My guest today is Professor Edward Watts. He's the the author of a, a variety of different books, and the book that we're discussing today, "Mortal Republic: How Rome Fell into Tyranny," uh, I think is appropriate considering there's a lot of fear on both the left and the right that political leaders are overstepping their bounds and saying, uh, hey, you don't have the right to do that. Uh, Of course, the most telling one right now that people are complaining about is uh, Trump kind of bypassing Congress in order to get the wall built. And so a lot of people are concerned about that. Um, Even people that you would think that would be supportive of that are saying, hey, listen, you're taking advantage. uh, You're finding loopholes here that aren't supposed to exist and therefore, uh, you're taking away the right of the people to determine what's going to happen. So, uh, Professor Watts, I wanted to ask you, uh, what do you think was the primary cause? You said it took about 100 years in order for uh, this to take place, the fall of Rome to take place, or that, that process to, to finish its course. What was it specifically that you're referring to when you say um, over that 100 years took place that changed uh, Rome?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Um, I think that the To understand that process, it's important to step back into the middle part of the second century B.C. Um, And what happens in Rome around the year, like 160, is uh, effectively Romans discover finance. You know, they discover that you can make large loans and you can resell those loans and you can, in essence, create money by creating a financial sector. Uh, And what this does is kind of similar to what's happened in the United States and in in Europe over the last 30 years. The people who understand that get very rich very quickly. Um, And the people who are shut out from that system or don't understand it, they get left behind. Uh, And what happens in the Roman Republic uh, is that the Republic had been set up and had worked very effectively as a, a political mechanism that built consensus so that it moved very slowly, it did solve problems, and it was dynamic. But it moved in such a way that the solutions that actually came into effect were supported by large percentages of the population. And if you couldn't get a large percentage of the population to support something, Romans felt it was better to do nothing than to do something that a bare majority or even a minority of the population supported.
1: Would you say that Um, our government is set up under a similar system to that to that with that same philosophical understanding?
2: I think that it is, Uh, and and I think that this is why you know these questions that are now being bounced around about getting rid of the filibuster are challenging questions um, because our system is really designed to create policies that large numbers of people support, and when you get a policy like that, that policy tends to stick because there's a a broad number of people, broad segment of the population that supports that policy. And the genius of Rome was to recognize that when you put policies like that in place, it takes longer to get them in place. But once they're in place, everybody agrees that they're legitimate and everybody supports them. And what happens in the aftermath of this this wealth gap developing in Rome is the Republic can't find those policies to address uh, the needs of the people who are left behind. And so for about a generation, they try. Um, And if they had been left to their own devices, they would have found one. Um, But starting in the 130s, politicians start um, demagoguing the issue of inequality. Uh, And one of them does this in such an aggressive way that he violates all sorts of political norms, none of which were illegal, but all sorts of things that had never been done before because they were um, dangerous. Um, And he ends up getting assassinated. And the violation of political norms that Tiberius Gracchus engages in uh, and the assassination that he ends up suffering, this sets the tone for what the next hundred years will bring. Um, And the violation of norms becomes increasingly severe. Mm -hmm. Um, The violence in politics becomes increasingly dangerous and widespread. And ultimately, a hundred years later, you have an incredibly destructive civil war. It ends with the republic transforming into the Roman Empire.
1: Oh, that's really interesting. So essentially, um, it's the corruption. It's it's I'm not going to follow the rules anymore. I'm going to I'm going to um, get away with, it, with whatever I can get away with in order to achieve the ends that I think are necessary, regardless of what the majority wants. Is that is that what you're saying?
2: That's what Tiberius Gracchus and the people like him did. And yeah. I think what's important to understand about him is. The solutions that he proposed probably would have happened anyway, but he wasn't patient. Um, He wanted to do them and he wanted to be the person who did them. And what that meant was he couldn't work in a system that was slow because he couldn't be responding. He he wouldn't have gotten the credit for making the reforms that he Mm. thought were necessary. Yeah, this is. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it was a very self-interested move on his part.
1: Yeah, there's a really interesting scene in the movie Amazing Grace where William Wilberforce, who's trying to abolish slavery, is having a discussion with one of his friends, and one of his friends says, "We need to do a re- we we need to have a revolution. We need a perfect, uh, we need a perfect government now." And he and he says, "No, he says, um, a c- civil government is better than no civil government at all, or or an imperfect civil government is is better than no civil government at all." And so you have these uh, two different groups of people. One wants something quick at whatever means is necessary, and the other says, no, let's take the slow road and get there without uh, creating all this chaos. Is, is that essentially what you're saying?
2: Yeah, and, and that's, you know, and that's in a sense the genius of the United States and also the genius of the Roman Republic. Um, you know, the, the people who set up both of those systems very much believed that it's, it's better to do nothing Um, than to do something that's not supported. And it is always better to do something within a system Mm -hmm. than to do something that overthrows that system. Um, Because once you overthrow a system, nobody knows what the rules are politically. And nobody then knows how to behave or how to evaluate whether a certain action um, is worth taking because they can't know what the consequences of their actions are. Mm. Uh, And it creates tremendous chaos. Uh, And... yeah,
1: I was going to say, I, I feel like that's a really, really important message for our culture and our uh, the, the people uh, in our country now currently, because it seems to me like a lot of people are saying, no, uh, better to throw off all restraint and fight for what we want, regardless, you know, and, and the consequences uh, be danged. Um, and so basically saying, you know, we're just going to um, do whatever it takes to get our way done. Uh, do you see that in in the culture at all? Or is that your reading on it? Uh, in our culture and Roman culture. In our culture.
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I do see elements of that, and I see it, um, and it is something that's particularly disturbing to me. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I personally believe that a free society is a dynamic society, and it's a society that can respond to what its citizens need because its citizens have a voice in how those decisions are made. Yeah. Uh, and and I think everyone who lives in a free society should understand the value of that. Um, I I personally would much rather prefer to live in a free society where conversations are dynamic than in an oppressive autocratic society where it does everything that I agree with. Mm -hmm. Um, The latter, I think, is extremely dangerous and completely unstable. I would much rather be in a a society where um, discussion is genuine and the society is dynamic and responds to what people want and what people are asking for.
1: Yeah, you... Um, the, the first chapter in your book um, uh, is, is titled Autocratic Freedom. Uh, wh- what, is that, what does that mean?
2: So that's a, that's a moment when um, the Republic falls and the Emperor Augustus takes power. And what he's able to do um, is quite remarkable. He, he is able to frame imperial power as a new type of freedom. Uh, what Rome had traditionally valued freedom as um, was the ability for, for citizens to speak freely about what they wanted and to create the laws under which they were governed. And what Augustus said was the republic has fallen so badly and it has, so, it has become so ineffectual that it can provide you a free voice. But what it cannot do is ensure that you'll still be alive to use that voice. Uh, and so autocratic freedom under Augustus is this promise of security in exchange for that free voice about politics. Um, and what Augustus does there is create what is on one level a false choice, right? I mean in, in, in the middle of the republic and for three hundred years during the republic, both things were there. You know, there were no there was no act of political violence for three hundred years between the middle of the 4th 5th century and the middle of the 2nd century B.C. Um, and the Republic for a very long time gave you both freedom to speak and make policy and freedom to stay alive and keep your property. And what Augustus said was that freedom to speak cannot now coexist with the freedom to stay alive. And staying alive is better, security is better, and I am making a deal with all Romans that I will provide security for you in exchange for your political autonomy. And Romans made that choice.
1: Wow. willingly. that That is a crazy statement. So, uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, he was saying, well, you get life or liberty, but you can't have both.
2: Yeah. Yeah, he's saying that the republic has broken so badly that there is no system left in Rome that can give you both. Wow. And you can choose life or you can choose liberty. Interesting. Uh, and Romans chose life.
1: <laughs> mm. My guest today is Professor Edward Watts. He's been teaching um, the history of Rome for 20 years. Uh, he is currently a professor at UCSD. Stay with us. We're going to continue to talk about this. I think it's incredibly relevant to our day and age here in America and um, the way forward. So we'll be right back.
2: Before I bring my need, I will bring my heart.
1: Fast Lane Kayaking sells popular Hobie Cat kayaks that you pedal, not paddle. That means your hands are left free for fishing and fun. Just throw these on your roof rack. They're light and they're easy to use and maintain. Just rinse them off. Try one free on a demo ride. For 36 years, Ron and Debbie Lane have served San Diego with fun, family-friendly water sports of all kinds. Learn more at FastLaneSailing.com, 619-222-0766. Thanks for listening today. This is Educate for Life. I'm your host, Kevin Conover, and we are on the radio here in San Diego County. We're on Praise FM 106.1 as well as AM 1210 um, in here in San Diego, but we're also streaming all over the country. We're on Facebook. We're on Periscope, YouTube, um, all those uh, avenues there if you want to check it out there, and we've got all kinds of shows um, that are dealing with difficult issues. Last week, I had the, the opportunity to interview uh, Pastor George Saig from Sudan, who has been um, uh, reaching out to Muslims for a very long time. And we were talking about the young woman who uh, went left for ISIS and now is trying was trying to get back into the U.S. And uh, she joined ISIS, and uh, Trump ended up saying, no, we can't uh, safely allow you back into the U.S. And so uh, all kinds of difficult subjects that we have to think through and think about and respond to. And my hope is that uh, we can leave you with a biblical perspective on issues and uh, Professor Watts, I wanted to ask you about this because you have such a heavy emphasis on religion, Christianity, and the the, the Roman Empire and, and how it affected things and so forth. Um, I'm curious to know your perspective on the role that Christianity and that religion in general, but specifically Christianity, pl- plays in America. And is it comparable to the role that uh, religion played um, in Rome, Christianity played in Rome? We have a lot, a lot of our founding fathers uh built their perspective about how government should happen built it on uh the example of Rome but also built it on the example of uh, the bible and christianity or got their their philosophical uh guidelines from a lot of what they believed uh religiously and so um is there a is there a, a comparison between religion in america christianity in america and Christianity in Rome, or is it uh, completely different um, different issues?
2: I think that it's um, I think that it's a difficult question because uh, Christianity takes root in Rome under the Empire, um, and so for the first three hundred years or so, Christianity is a persecuted religion under the Empire, um, and then with the conversion of the Emperor Constantine, it becomes effectively a state-supported religion, and by the time you get into the fifth century, it's a state religion. Um, but it's a state religion that functions in conjunction with an emperor. Uh, and, and so I think what you have in the United States is a little bit different, because uh, what Christianity ends up doing when it becomes the state religion of the Roman Empire is uh, creates a structure that is imperial, um, autocratic, and Christian, And the the emperors who understand that best work very closely with bishops, um, especially the emperors in Constantinople working with the patriarch of Constantinople. Uh, And so they create a Christian imperial Roman culture that is actually one of the most powerful binding influences in the Roman state. Um, It is, in a sense, what keeps the Roman Empire together for a thousand years after the West succumbs to barbarian invasion. Um, but it is it is very different from the way that Christianity works in the United States, where you have many different denominations, um, and and you have a democratic government. Mm. And so I, I think that, uh, you know, Christianity is important in both contexts, but it, I think it's working differently in the Roman context than it is in the American
1: context. Yeah, so so uh, one of the quotes from John Adams, he says, statesmen, my dear sir, may plan and speculate for liberty, but it is religion and morality alone which can establish establish the principles upon which freedom can securely stand um this this was a letter he writ wrote to um, somebody in uh, june twenty first seventeen seventy six and i'm curious to hear your perspective on that um, because if that's true, if what he's saying is true, religion and morality alone uh is what establishes freedom um this is interesting to me how this plays out in you know in looking at the issue of tyranny, looking at what happened to Rome, and then how it plays out in our own culture. Do you think that that's a true statement? Uh, or what do you think about that?
2: I think that if you were to ask, say, a Roman in Constantinople in the sixth century, what is, what is your conception of freedom and morality? Mm. Um, they would say that freedom comes through Christianity. Um, but they would have a different idea of freedom than we do. Um, you know, th- their idea of freedom would be something that exists as a protected citizen in a regime where one person ultimately is in charge, but there are supposed to be ethical and moral limitations on what that person can do to the citizens living in that state. Um, it's in a sense an evolution of what Augustus put in place, you know, 500 years before that, where there is one person in charge, but he's not absolutely in charge and he's bound by Um, Christian ideas, and he's bound by a a code of moral behaviors that are in some ways dictated by what Christianity holds. And so I think your your Roman, if you were to ask a Roman in Constantinople in, say, 550, does John Adams' quote work, they would say yes. But they wouldn't think that John Adams—they wouldn't understand it in the same way that John Adams understood it.
1: I see what you're saying. That's interesting. Now, but, but do you think that uh, John Adams had a different idea of, of what liberty was than uh, most the average person does today in America?
2: Uh, that's an interesting question, and I have to confess, I don't know as much about John Adams, perhaps I should. Um, I think that when you're in the 18th century, you in essence have a, a you know, a hybrid of this Roman idea of liberty, mm-hmm. you know, because a lot of these people had lived under British rule, and there is a conception of liberty that is emerging under British rule, Um, and to some degree a conception of, you know, morality that's defined, or or influenced at least, by what your, like, Byzantine in in, um, the 1300s would say, or your Roman in Constantinople in 550 would say. Uh, And so I think that what what you have there are two distinctive traditions, both of which have connections to things that you see in Rome. Um, But I think two different Romes, in a sense. Uh, the liberty would definitely be a liberty that someone in the Roman Republic would understand. Um, but they wouldn't understand Adam's conception of religion at all. Uh, and I think Adam's conception of religion and morality would be something that someone in Constantinople in 550 could probably you know, understand on some level, at least. Okay. Um, so- but, I, but I think that both... You know, I think that those two Romans would look at each other and not really understand what each one was talking about.
1: (laughs) Okay, so this is really interesting. So um, I just want to clarify, liberty under Roman rule, what you're saying is it's liberty within bounds. It's not unlimited freedom to do whatever you want. I mean, a lot of people in our country today would say that freedom or liberty is the idea that you can pretty much do whatever you want um, as long as it's not hurting somebody else. So are you saying that the idea of freedom and liberty under, under Rome was a different concept than that concept?
2: Yes, it's, it's political. Um, you know, for, for them, uh, there are very clear ideas of what kinds of conduct is acceptable and not acceptable. Um, there's not always agreement on what those ideas should be. You know, there's different philosophical schools in the Roman Republic. Um, there are different interpretations of Christian biblical teaching in the later Roman Empire um but I think all of these people would agree that there's certain conduct that is not okay um and their conception of political liberty uh especially in the Roman Republic is the political liberty of an individual to participate in a Roman state that collectively takes the voices of its citizens and implements laws and policies on the basis of what those voices collectively say mm. that to them is liberty um, you know it, it's the ability to speak freely to help shape the laws and conditions under which you're living politically um, but it definitely does not extend to you know so doing whatever you want personally
1: mm, interesting and and for a long time even in our own country i would say that uh, the understanding of liberty didn't extend to Uh, whatever you want to do it 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 had moral guidelines it was liberty within within moral guidelines Um, so you mentioned earlier in the first segment you said something i thought was really interesting you said that within a particular time frame they began to make loans and this ushered in this uh, vast um, or huge gap between those who understood how to make loans and they started making lots of money and those who didn't and they started um they they were kind of left behind in a sense um yeah. and and you say this is a big turning point is that right yeah. yeah okay we're we're coming up on a break but when we get back we're going to talk about how um uh, money in essence and making loans uh from Pro- professor Edward Watts uh how that impacted Rome and i i feel uh, that this is a huge issue in our own culture today too Um, I've seen it play out plenty of times. So stay with us. We're going to continue to have this discussion. It's very interesting. We'll be right back. being with us today. This is Educate for Life. I'm your host, Kevin Conover, and uh, I hope you're enjoying the program so far. I, I really am. I think this is a very interesting stuff, very relevant to our lives, and uh, it's, it's not ivory tower talk and uh, stuff that we have to actually think about to ourselves. Okay, uh, how do I want to vote in the future? How do I want to impact the culture in the future? What views should I have on the way money is used and so forth? My guest today, Professor Edward Watts, has been teaching uh, Roman history for 20 years. He's at UCSD. Uh, right here in San Diego, University of California, San Diego. And uh, Professor Watts, um, I left off the, the last segment there asking you to explain what happened over that 100-year period where Romans started making loans.
2: Yeah, so it's a very interesting thing um, to think about and to, to look at what Roman money looks like. Um, you know, starting in the year like 200 B.C., the Roman economy doesn't really have a, a financial sector. Um, how much money you had was literally how much money you had. Um, You know, Scrooge McDuck style could swim in your property. Um, And it was all tangible. And what ends up happening is the the Roman state begins these these processes of uh, conquering territories and trying to figure out how to get resources out of those territories. And what they decide to do is, contract out the creation of mines and the governing of provinces and the collections of taxes. And anyone who bids for these contracts pays up front and no one has enough money to cover, say all of the silver that you're going to mine in Spain for two years. So they take out loans to pay for these contracts, but it's almost guaranteed these loans will be paid back. And the people who give these loans start realizing that you can assess how much that loan is worth. You can sell it to somebody And then you can take that money that you get from selling the loan, recapitalize and make another loan. Um, But what that effectively does is it creates money because you, you are in essence selling that loan for money. You're making that loan a thing that has value. um, When 20 years before you didn't realize it had value, you didn't realize it was something that you could sell. Uh, And the people who figure this out and figure out that you can very quickly make a loan, sell that loan, make another loan, sell that loan, and keep on recapitalizing and making more loans, you realize that you can become very rich very quickly Mm -hmm. by doing that. And this is the the beginning of a Roman financial sector that will get to the point where you know the richest person in Rome in 190 BC um, was the guy who defeated Hannibal in Carthage. And the richest guy 110 years later had more than 70 times as much money, um, but less stuff. And I think that's the that's the moment where you can see there's a real shift. Um, money is now like our money; it exists on paper, it exists um, in theory. It's mm-hmm. not in your vault, and you can swim through it.
1: Yeah, it's not. It's no longer has a some sort of a backing. Uh, we have. Yeah, it's
2: no longer tangible and physical. It's, yeah,
1: yeah. And you and and so this uh, expand on that. So how did this facilitate? the uh eventual you know moving towards tyranny and, and, and eventual fall of rome
2: i think that the thing that's important to understand about these people is they're, they're not doing anything that's illegal um but what they're doing is something that is not wonderful in a society that has been relatively equitable I and mean, relatively equitable you know the, the richest people are not ridiculously richer than the people in the middle And this opens up a class of super wealthy people who are not very large, but suddenly control a huge amount of resources. And they start buying things and and crowding out people with less resources who were comfortable before. Uh, And this creates a, a real political challenge. Because what do you do with people whose incomes are maybe stable, maybe slightly lower, but they're looking at certain people becoming fabulously wealthy, wealthier than any Roman had ever been before, and their prospects are not as good. Um, and they feel like this is unequal uh, and that society is not taking care of everybody in the same way. Um, and it creates a political tension that takes a very long time to develop, you know, the better part of a generation before Romans get set up and start really angling for radical solutions. Um, but the problem a republic faces when something like that happens very quickly is the republic doesn't move very quickly. And so it's very hard to find a solution that a large number of people will all support.
0: Mm.
2: And this this is where the, the challenge begins for Rome, um, because the republic doesn't move quickly enough to address these concerns. Mm. And people like Tiberius Gracchus step into the middle of it and start proposing... Um, solutions that work quickly, but don't have the backing that, say, a consensus or a compromise solution would have. Mm. Um, And it creates all sorts of frictions, where people feel like their interests are not being heard, um, or their input is being disregarded.
1: That's really interesting. So, I mean, primarily, I I mean, that sounds like we're in the middle of that in that very thing, where we're experiencing this, where you have people saying, Hey, uh, there's there's inequity here. Uh, there's no way that person should be making that much money compared to what I'm making, trying to survive here. And then you have lots of people arguing that votes are bought. It's no longer a representative form of government because um, only certain people's voices heard; those who have them are heard; those who have the the most money. Do you do you would you say we're in the middle of that?
2: Uh, you know, I this is one of the parallels that I look at, and I see something that's that's quite similar um, from, say, Rome of the 140s and, and the U.S. now, um, that tension is definitely there. Um, now, I, I don't know what the solution to that is. Oh, um,
1: no. Oh, here yeah. I, I was. I thought we were going to end the show with you telling us what to do here.
2: <laughs> but what I what I will say is yeah. whatever that solution is, um, a lot of people, it needs to be something that a lot of people support. You know, it whatever that solution is, whatever it proves to be, it needs to be done in the way that the that a republic wants it done. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it has to be something where broad numbers of people support it or it won't stick.
1: And that and just seems like that just seems like that's the difference between, you know, to a large extent, a lot of people would say that's the contrast between the Republican Party and the Democrat Party is one says uh, free market. It, it does not matter how uh, wealthy you get. And then the other one's saying, no, no. We need to take from uh, a large group of people. And this might be where the whole Tiberius Gracchus comes in is that some people are saying, look, we need somebody to come in. And and the whole argument over socialism that's taking place right now, which is we need to redistribute the wealth because um, not enough people are getting their fair share. But then that would be the quick fix that you're talking about that ultimately um, caused so many problems.
2: Yeah. And again, I think wherever we go, a quick fix is the wrong way to go. <laughs> yeah. Whatever that quick fix is, um, you know, if it's somebody who says, I own it and it moves quickly, um, I think that doesn't work in the way a republic should. And I think the big lesson from Rome is you know, what Tiberius Bracchus was proposing was pretty modest. He was taking public land away from people who were renting it in quant- in quantities that were excessive, and he was redistributing it to poor people it wouldn't have solved the problem. It wouldn't have even made a significant dent in the problem. Um, but his solution was pushed for symbolic reasons. And, and that's the real danger that, that we see in the 130s in Rome. is, It's a solution that is incredibly controversial, but doesn't actually do very much to solve the problem. Mm.
0: Uh,
2: and, and that's absolutely the worst case. You know, something that is symbolic, but not substantive, It doesn't address any of the issues, uh, any of the underlying issues or causes of the anger, Mm. but it produces so much um, anger and violence and vitriol. Yes, uh, and it doesn't actually solve the problem. So
1: it's not enduring. So, Professor, what's the worst case? Yeah. So you're you're a professor. I mean, you deal with uh, you're working with young people all the time who are in college who are you know formulating their ideas. We're almost out of time here, but I wanted to ask you this. So. You know, uh, the stats recently say with with uh Ocasio-Cortez um and 50% of millennials support socialism is is what's an often quoted uh stat. Um that seems outrageous compared to you, you know what our country was built upon and so forth, but uh is that what you're seeing is this idea of we need to aggressively advance uh, a socialist viewpoint? Um, or how, how, what do you see happening in your classrooms as far as uh, the up-and-coming generations and how they feel about how government should be?
2: Uh, what I see from my students, uh, you know, they want tools to think with. They, they don't want to be told, do this or do that. And, and it's not right for us to tell them, do this or do that. What, what they want are a set of tools so that they can think about the world that they're confronting and how one might address it. Um, and I think that this group of young people have very legitimate concerns. I think student debt is a real problem for yeah. the students that i I am working with um, and I see and I hear them making choices all the time because of the the debt load they're carrying. Um, but I, I think that what they really want to do is be empowered with information to make choices and make good choices. Um, I, I don't see in my students. I don't see anything beyond just trying to better understand the world that they're in mm. and trying to make informed decisions about how to address the problems that they're confronting. Um, I think for, for those of us who are older than those students, it's important to understand that the, the issues they're confronting and especially the student debt issue is a real concern. They yeah. have really legitimate things to be concerned about. Um, but I, I think they are moving forward in a way that is a good faith effort to get as much information as they can to solve problems in ways that are productive. Mm. And I I think um, productive and generative of social cohesion. I don't think that um, I don't see in them anything more than incredibly bright and talented students who are trying to assemble the information that's going to let them understand the world that they're in.
1: Well, uh, thank you so much, Professor, for being on the program today. Professor Edward Watts was my guest today, and uh, I think the message you're sharing is one that um, more and more people need to become aware of and uh, be able to deal with what we're we're talking about. I think there's so much more to talk about on this subject, but uh, we are out of time here. So thank you so much for being on the program today.
2: Thank you so much. I had a great time.
1: Absolutely. And uh, we'll be back next week, 1230, on Friday. If you like this program and you didn't get to hear the whole thing, uh, p- please feel free to tune into a recording. We're on uh, Facebook and YouTube and other uh, uh, platforms that you can listen to. Praise 106.1 and AM 1210. This program will air on Sunday evening if you'd like to check it out there. My website's educateforlife.org. All kinds of um, valuable courses and classes you can take online, you and your family, in order to be better equipped to be able to handle some of the hard stuff that Uh, is coming our way and and questions we have to ask and deal with on a regular basis about things like religion, about things like human origins, about things like freedom and liberty and and, uh, those sorts of issues. So I hope that's a blessing to you. Please check it out, educateforlife.org. And uh, I hope you have a fantastic Friday and a great weekend. Stay out of the rain. God bless you. Bye bye.
2: Did you miss part of today's program? Don't worry, we're committed to helping you get the info you need. Okay, that was dumb. But for real, visit educateforlife.com for podcasts and video recordings of the show and to sign up for the School of Unshakable Faith. Leave us your comments, compliments, questions, or concerns at 800 243 243.